Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation. I'm Robin. I'm Heidi. And today we'll be discussing Chapter 7, The Bathtub. Today's coffee, uh, for me, I'm actually just drinking, I'm drinking half-calf because times are tough mm-hmm. and uh, and so sleeping can be a little tricky sometimes, so I'm trying to ease back on the, on the caffeine a bit, but uh, it's just hazelnut and decaf. But however, uh, the fun twist to this is that I am actually drinking from a custom-made Stranger Things mug, which was made by my last roommate, and she made this as a gift for me, which I really, really appreciate. So thank you, Tatiana. It's the kids on the bikes, and then on one level, and then flea in the acrobat style, you've got Will and the Demogorgon underneath the upside upside down, as it were. <laughs> so, But I really love this mug, so I thought since the coffee's a little boring today, I thought I would... Uh, Spice it up with a more interesting uh, vessel from which to to consume it. I actually have a duplicate of that mug, and you can find an image of the mugs on our Instagram. Yeah. And uh, today I am, once again, not having coffee. I am having Lemon Lift because it's my favorite. Hey, an old faithful. Mm -hmm. It works. Now that we have coffee, let's begin our contemplations. Let's not be coy. This is probably the best cold open of the entire series, I think. At least that's how I feel at this particular moment. Yeah. It's, again, because we highlighted how short the last one was, I don't know if they intended it to be this, like, inverted or what, but ah, it's so good. It is. It's so good. What's interesting is that there are several episodes up to this point in the season where I pretty consistently remember most of what happens in the episode. But with this episode... It's like I remember Polaroids, sort of, you know, Polaroid moments, one of them being the van and um, another being all of them like crouched down in the bus trying to hide from the helicopter and then like Elle in the bathtub. And there were like huge swaths of the episode that I didn't remember. Now, that's interestingly not to say that I didn't enjoy them. Me realizing that I had forgotten them helped me to appreciate them all the more this run through. But I think it speaks to like the power of those, especially like the van and the bathtub moments. They just like stuck in my memory. So to get into the details of this fantastic cold open, moments after the end of the monster, Elle and Mike are in the bathroom and Mike's helping her clean up. It's almost a romantic mom. I mean, it's intended to be romantic, but I'll admit that, I don't know, I always kind of thought that the stuff of them kissing or almost kissing here in particular felt a little forced. You know, I don't know that we needed it at this point. It's obvious that Mike and Elle are a thing. And it's also obvious that they're very young and that this is their first time, like, experiencing those kinds of feelings, especially contemplating whether those kinds of feelings might be reciprocated. Um, You know, it's different from my kind of joking about Nancy being Steve's first big boy relationship. This is a very puppy love relationship at this stage. It's not to say that I don't love and appreciate Malevin. It's not like... No, we we like Malevin. Yeah. Around here. Yeah. 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 No, I'm fully on board that ship. So I really love the exchange between Mike and Eleven when she is missing the wig, kind of, you know, towards the beginning of the scene. And he says, you don't need it. And she has this, like, incredibly 
vulnerable expression and this like echoing the animalistic side of her that I talked about in earlier episodes when she's more angry or afraid, but this is a more obviously a very, very vulnerable moment for her. And that kind of comes out as a sort of like sad puppy kind of vibe. And I don't mean that in any way critically. I think it's beautifully acted. And you know, when she's like still pretty, like, you know, she is looking for validation and she's scared that she won't get it. And then Mike is like, yeah. I think him sort of not realizing that this could be a romantic moment kind of enables him to just kind of be there for her mm -hmm. and to just reassure her without it having a lot of like baggage on it. And then like, you know, when they start leaning towards each other, I do kind of like it, but I don't read it as an almost kiss. Mm -hmm. I actually kind of read it as neither of them knows what's about to happen. Right. Why are we getting closer? I don't know. Do I want, I kind of want to get closer to, uh, and you know, and then Dustin's like, bam. Yeah. <laughs> Announce urgently that Lucas is trying to reach them over the walkie talkie. And I always, I always get so much enjoyment out of Lucas's like, son of a bitch. Like, I don't <laughs> And I, I'm always, why. because it's great. It, it's so, like, <laughs> candid. I love it so much. I, I'm always wondering, who is he saying that to? Like, is he saying that to, like, his bike won't go fast enough? I think or... he's saying it to the to the walkie-talkie, because I oh. bet he knows they can't hear him properly. Yeah. And he's just like, mm, son of a bitch! Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, it's hysterical. And I don't know if they intended that to be as funny as it actually is. But you have this moment and then that's followed by just his concern is so palpable mm -hmm. and he knows that they're all in danger and his motive seems to change. And I like to see this as the reality of the situation has finally sunk in. He's finally worried for Elle's safety. Mike and Dustin, yeah, but he even says they know about Eleven, which yeah. tells me that he's gotten it. She was a victim and that her life is on the line, which is just as important as Will's life. Yeah. Like the way that it's built to that moment. I'll say this again in a minute, but that feels very earned. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like it's come out of nowhere. Again, that's why I like that the conflict didn't get resolved last episode, because you needed to feel this, that Lucas really truly gets it. Like seeing it, this fleet of vans like coming out of the lab where he knows the gate is, like it's just, it all sinks in. It's beautiful. It's chef's kiss. I know that I have kind of expressed a little bit of discomfort with Lucas's being the one who brings the conflict because like, you know, oh, the only black kid in the group is the annoying one or the one who like isn't trusting or like, you know, me being white, I'm not going to sit here and make a final judgment one way or another because I'm simply not qualified. I just wanted to register that I was a little like, I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah. But I have to say this was a fantastic Lucas episode. Yeah. Lucas is so clever, and I mean that, like, in, in the best possible way. Like, I don't know in Lucas's position if I would have put all of those puzzle pieces together. I would have known something was hanky, but I wouldn't have known, oh my god, they're after Eleven. But the fact that, first of all, he figures, he's in a position to figure everything out, but then he immediately springs into action. Like, he's scared for everyone else's sake, but he is absolutely not turning away from the danger. He is plowing straight into the danger screaming the whole way doesn't waste any time being like well i still don't know about you but I, at least i i like these guys no we're not gonna waste time talking about it get out of there right now 
I love it. Yeah. Well, and I like, too, that his smarts are also earned. Yeah. You know, you you totally buy that these are kids that have these very, very sharp, deductive reasoning skills. And to your point, you know, that Lucas, in the heat of the moment, is just like, get out of there. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, you hear his concern, but they don't skip over the apology that that comes right. at the end. Yeah. yeah. But he does yeah. say, I was wrong. Well, let's, let's, let's continue on. Yeah, yeah. So Mike rushes into the kitchen and asks Karen about whether they have any scheduled repairs. Karen is asking about whether Steve is home. And I think that's the closest we ever get to, like, possible direct connection to the Harrington parents. It seemed like there was some hesitation on the other end. And I think she was, I think Karen was trying to check up on Nancy because she said, well, I know that she and Steve have been spending some time together. Can you ask him? And whoever was on the other end of the line was just like blowing her off, Mm. you know, and then Mike comes in and starts like with the whole questioning and and everything. Meanwhile, Dustin watches the fleet of vans arrive outside. And I noticed there's a weird blurring effect on the van, the one van when it turns into the Wheeler's driveway. And it made me wonder if it was two shots stitched together using, I think it's called the morph dissolve in Premiere, which is an effect I've used a couple times it's or tried to i've never been able to make it work because it ends up looking like what this does and you only really see it like on the actual writing on the siding of the van but it was a surprising thing to catch because it was like really okay if anyone asks i've left the country (laughs) i love that line and i love her reaction to it because she's just like what and um, my first thought when Dustin came in while Mike was trying to talk to his mom and then Mike did the same like one minute yep. finger thing to yep. Dustin that Karen had done to Mike. Sure does. And like I kind of like chuckled a little bit, but Matarazzo's delivery of that line, Mike, we need to go right now, blips the entire tone of the scene and the episode up to that point in this like really, really serious direction that like sets the tone for the rest of the chase scene. And it's so masterfully done both by Matarazzo as an actor. I'm sure that there's like directing and cinematography and like score all kind of like folded into that. And the chase essentially begins from there. The kids use woods and non-paved areas to actually get ahead of the vans. Mm-hmm. The way kids would, they know they would know off-road paths and trails to take. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this sequence in Trevor Noah's um, autobiography. I promise. I just made a, a connection. I just made a face like, <laughs> what? Whoa, okay. <laughs> so he was talking about Trevor Noah was talking about how you know in one of his childhood adventures, he and one of his friends had to run from some manner of authority figure. I don't remember if it was cops or like teachers or grown-ups or something, but they knew the neighborhood inside out, upside down, backwards and forwards. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And the people who were chasing them were just like chasing them along the sidewalk. So they just like bolted and there was never any chance that they were going to catch up because they just did not have the depth of knowledge of the neighborhood. And what I was thinking about kind of in conjunction with that is these kids know the neighborhood, they're of the neighborhood, and like this is their home territory. And it's kind of a, I think there's an interesting level of like oppressive authority versus like, you know, the little guy, Mm -hmm. like a a David and Goliath kind of thing happening or like a Robin Hood Prince John kind of thing happening. They are able to live in and escape the oppressive authority of this 
government figure because they know their neighborhood they know their land they know their people Mm -hmm. it almost feels like like a recurring sort of thing that they don't go too too far into but that the more the more human element over the more authoritative element is always going to be successful because of the relationships that can be found within the human element brenner and his goons have all of this authority politically governmentally etc they also have all of these like guns and vans and resources but they're outsmarted and outwitted by this pack of people who care about each other not only is that very heartwarming and very pleasant for us to watch and like very in keeping with like american values but also it is very earned it's very believable you understand exactly how this ragtag team is able to outwit this much more powerful group of people that makes me think of the moment after the van flip when you see brenner he walks around the van that's just crashed Mm -hmm. without any concern for the drivers or the passengers that were in it just absolutely cold and callous but that van flip though i have some quotes uh from worlds turned upside down here Special effects coordinator Caius Mann explains how he helped Eleven make the van fly. Quote, from our standpoint, it really wasn't that supremely complicated. A flying car is a flying car. There were some unusual aspects to that because of the unnatural way they wanted it to fly, where it lifted sort of straight up and then tipped forward. So it took a little engineering, but it worked when we did it. We actually physically fired a van. We towed one down to the street, and the van had in it two nitrogen cannons, two nitrogen sleeves that fired a high-density plastic slug out of the bottom of them to push it up into the air. One was just hitting it a little harder than the other, which is what resulted in it going end-over-end the way it was supposed to. We built a small test in our shop. Basically, we built a plywood van with a couple of pneumatic cylinders, and we hopped it around the shop a bunch of times, and we were satisfied that it was going to function. The Duffers wanted to see a full-size version of it to make sure that we could get it sufficiently high so that they could composite the children on the bicycles underneath it. We shot it in the air, and then we had the kids ride down the street with the camera in the same position. Then we just cropped the two images together. We didn't shoot the van over the kids, that would be insane. We took it to a parking lot, a similar van, not the exact same van, to a parking lot at Screen Gems, at our studio, and shot it. It launched, and everybody was excited. It landed exactly where I told him it was going to land, and pretty much everything was as it should be. On the day, we pointed three cameras at it, and we had a camera in the middle of the street that was aimed straight at it. It was the point of view of the kids, and we fired it up over the camera. The first time we did it, we had a mechanical flaw. Instead of jumping up in the air, the front end jumped up and not the back, and it shark attacked the camera in the middle of the street and destroyed it. So that didn't work as well as we would have liked. The body shop fixed the bumper in a couple of days and we shot it again two weeks later. It was flawless and beautiful. As Sean Levy described it, quote, the gag's so nice we did it twice, end quote. And I would say it was well worth the effort because that scene is phenomenal. I love it. And I mean, it's very famous for good reason. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're telling anybody anything that they don't already know about, you know, how awesome it looks. Yeah. The van flip itself would not be quite as remarkable as it is were it not for the acting. You know, Millie Bobby Brown and Finn Wolfhard, especially Mike, just looking up as it goes over him with this expression of, like, wonder. He's not cheering. It's just like, look at it go. We've seen Elle do a number of very remarkable things. You know, kill, what is it, two grown-ass men? Mm -hmm. We've seen her shatter glass and do a number of really impressive things. Open the gate. Yeah, but that was not intentional. This does feel like an escalation, though, because, like, 
you're like, oh my God, what is she going to do? But And then she just like flips the thing. Mm-hmm. Once the van crashes, the music cuts out, but then does not return after it hits the street. To your point about the acting, it's it's also the way the sequence is constructed is that, you know, all we hear is this, is the ambient sounds and the matching sound design to enunciate the shock from the boys while we watch them exchange glances. Just like, so that just happened. In us discussing this now and, and repeating how, how good it is, I think it's the point of all of that is that it really holds up, continues to stand very strongly, even and especially in contrast to some of the things we see in later seasons, because you've been building towards it throughout this sequence. I mean, even when Elle and Brenner see each other at the start, there's no placating her in that moment. It's just, it's the both of their expressions are very just open and honest she's like i'm trying to get away from you and he's like i'm coming for you there's Mm -hmm. like no there's no within the actual story there's no acting between them yeah it's just there's it's just a very honest exchange and the kids reach the junkyard to catch their breath lucas says it was awesome admits he was wrong apologizes to l l admits that she was lying and apologizes to followed by mike who sounds so much more sincere this time they all do mike and lucas shake hands Conflict resolved and resolution earned. Yes. I also like that this sort of conflict resolution actually came at the place where the big conflict happened Dude, in the first place. I never thought of that. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. Everything about that exchange between him and Elle is just fantastic. Not only is he apologizing to her, he's also forgiving her. And there really is something there for mm-hmm. him to forgive. This is the second time that Lucas has seen Elle use her powers in a violent way, and the first time was on him. Mm -hmm. So it is really big of him to say, I was wrong about you. You are not a traitor. Let's be friends. And I also love that Elle says, I'm sorry too. And it's so subtle, but I really like that Lucas reaches out and touches her, breaching the gap that's between them. I like it. It feels a little, it's one of the only things about like the kids' performances, it feels a little staged. Oh, really? I, I hate admitting that, but yeah, every time I see it, I'm like, that he was directed to do that. It doesn't feel natural to me, but I like it anyway. Mm. I like too that Lucas's characterization is consistent. He doesn't pull a dust in and suddenly go, it was awesome. He's not cheerful because it doesn't, the show doesn't, and the writing doesn't ignore the fact of everything that's happened between them. There's also like a tone of still a little, I would say a little bit, not fear exactly, but just respect in in that tone. Like it's very, I'm still very much aware of the kind of power you have, but it's also, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. So I like that too. Did I mention how good this whole sequence is? (laughs) Seriously, if you haven't been watching along, if you're listening to this and you haven't been watching along with us, I strongly recommend at least watching that sequence. Like, pull it up. It's so good. Actually, like, let me take a little bit of a moment to shout out to my mom. Mom doesn't like Stranger Things. (laughs) (laughs) But she likes Robin and I. So she's been listening anyway. Mom, episode seven of season one. You can watch all the way through... So they shake hands until Mike and Lucas shake hands. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's no worms and no monsters and nothing that you don't like about Stranger Things. And then you'll get what we've just been geeking out for the last, well, I mean, real time, it's probably been like half an hour. It's fine. (laughs) So then we get our title sequence. So then we get the title sequence. (laughs) Let's get to the beginning of this episode, guys. Um, (laughs) Powell and Callahan show Hopper the trunk full of hunting supplies. I did, I did, well, I mean, I don't know if I have anything to, like, 
note, but I thought it was extremely in character that Joyce just like barges in and is like, get those handcuffs off of him. And then like, they're like, I'm afraid we can't do that, ma'am. And then Hopper's like, you heard her. (laughs) Yeah, you heard her. Hopper wants to see Jonathan in his office, which prompts the, you won't believe me. And I actually really like the, why don't you give me a try? Instead of the all too cliche, try me. I don't know. It evokes to me that there's a little more agency given to Jonathan that way. It's more like, I almost kind of wonder if Hopper is in some way demonstrating patience that, you know, as in he's willing to say the full phrase rather than just abbreviate it. Try me. It's more confrontational. Whereas, why don't you? invites further conversation. And these are things that are going to register on a subconscious level. For me, it definitely evoked patience Mm -hmm. from Hopper, which is something that I really, really appreciate. Despite the fact that we're talking about the delivery of a specific sentence, on a nonverbal level, I think that Hopper is telegraphing to Jonathan in that moment, I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's why we're moving to my private office to talk about it. Back at the Wheelers, keeping in mind that this is after... Karen had previously, in last episode, had found the sleeping bag in the open window that Nancy snuck out of for some reason. Karen now goes kind of exploring in the basement. You can't enter the lair, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) Like mother, like daughter, Mm -hmm. I guess, and like son. As a result of that, she finds a strand of blonde hair Mm. in in the fort. She's interrupted, though, when there's the knock on the door and the the fleet of lab goons search the search the house. I forgot too that Brenner finds the Benny's diner shirt mm. in the laundry. That was a little bittersweet and uh they talk to Karen and Ted. What I found interesting about this beat too is that this is the exact same tactic that Brenner will use on Joyce. Works here, does not work on Joyce. Yeah. Well, and to Karen's defense, I think she's very well aware that something is not right. I don't think she actually trusts Brenner. You know, at the very least on an instinctual level, she knows something is very wrong here. I think she just feels overwhelmed Mm -hmm. by Brenner's authority. And I have a lot of sympathy for that. I do too. And I think that if Joyce was in Karen's position, I think she would have responded in much the same way Mm -hmm. that Karen had. She probably would have been like louder and more frenetic, but... I don't think that the end result would have been any different. Back over at the junkyard, Lucas explains what he's figured out about how the gate has to be in the lab and they determine that the lab is bad. I have kind of opposed feelings about this because on the one hand, it makes sense to me that they would still have to talk through this because while Elle was a prisoner there, she doesn't really know what they're doing. She doesn't have any idea what the lab is for. She just knows she was a prisoner there and they were using her to do nefarious things, but she doesn't know what their mission is, blah, blah, blah. However, I'm kind of surprised that there's some debate about whether or not the gate is in there. Like, she opened the gate when she was in the lab, so... Part of it, I think, is exposition. Like, in case you got up for some popcorn, here's... Or skipped several months between watching. Exactly. (laughs) But also, Elle is semi nonverbal. Mm-hmm. She literally does not have the vocabulary to be able to articulate this is where right. the gate is and so on. Lucas constructing this map and figuring out like this is where this road is, this is where it is, blah blah blah, makes complete sense because the kids are so committed to their D&D, they're used to looking at maps. Right. That's how they play their game. So of course it's going to occur to them. Mike says they can't go home, we're fugitives now, and that's when they hear the incoming helicopters, which prompts them to stash the bikes under the bus. This is when we go back to the station and see 
Jonathan and Nancy sharing the photo with Hopper and Joyce. Two units have now connected and are about to team up. Mm-hmm. The scene shifts to Jonathan and Joyce talking privately, and I, you know, it really shows Joyce how expressing how much she clearly loves Jonathan and how much, like at the beginning with the kids, the previous conflict and miscommunication between them is resolved, made most clear by the look on Jonathan's face over Joyce's shoulder once they're both, you know, once they're hugging. And it strikes me that he feels like he's kind of gotten his mom back, just that like she sees him and that he now knows that she was worried about him too. One of the themes of this episode is you're not alone. You have allies, you have friends, and that the miscommunication is not that you are unacceptable. The miscommunication is that we have failed to remember that we're all in this together. Mm. So, you know, you expect Joyce to be angry with Jonathan for getting into a fight, for getting arrested. But like the reason that that scene works so well for me is because she doesn't give a shit about him getting into a fight. She is a lot more concerned about those hunting supplies in his trunk and what he planned to do with them by himself. Mm -hmm. So her thing is, we have to stick together. It's a sort of come to Jesus moment for both of them to realize just how much they are actually united and just how much they really do love each other and believe in each other. It's very easy for the line, you're not alone, to be clunky, cheesy, overwrought, you know. But Winona Ryder's delivery of that line is just perfect. I think we see a reflection of her own loneliness in it. Yeah, I I really love that scene. I also really like the fact that Joyce does say in that moment, what if something happened to you? You put your life at risk. And that- And Nancy's. And how that, I think, has got to be a little bit of a, I don't want to say like a relief, but because it's not a good thing necessarily, but that for Jonathan to hear, I'm worried about you too. Mm-hmm. Do you know what that would do to me if something happened to you? I've lost one kid. I can't lose you too. Like, it's got to be like weirdly comforting. Like, yeah. oh, you are, you are, you do care about my safety too. Yeah. However, the moment is interrupted a little bit because Troy and his mother have shown up at the station to report what happened with L. Troy mentions that his his attacker had no hair and that's what makes Hopper pay closer attention. Finding out that the girl he knows to be Jane Ives is with the, quote, losers. From there, we swing to the convenience store where Tommy, Steve, and Carol are hanging out. And Steve's face is busted. Ugh. Tommy gives Steve a Coke and says, you owe me a dollar twenty, Which I thought was peculiar. Funnily enough, in this watch, I don't agree with anything that Tommy is saying, but... The character beats for Tommy and for Carol actually make me feel a little bit more sympathetic toward Tommy. Mm. Him saying like, oh, you owe me a dollar twenty. Like, I literally think he's just trying to lighten the mood. That was how I was. That's how Mm. I was reading it. That it was just like, here you go. Because I think he also he also brought Steve Aspirin. I think he said something like Jonathan's going to need more than that when we're through with him. mm -hmm. And then Carol is also, I think, trying to make Steve feel better by talking shit about Jonathan and talking shit about Nancy. Because from their perspective, Nancy cheated on Steve with Jonathan. And so now we dislike both of them. And yeah, they both disliked both of them before. But I don't feel like... It feels honest. Like, this conversation actually feels justified. 
What doesn't feel justified is this conversation in context with everything that we have seen from the previous episode. I don't disagree that it that it's in character, but I I do disagree that it fe- that that like there's an earnestness to it because of the blocking, because mm. of the way that it's directed and staged in that Tommy even has to reach around Carol to like give Steve the stuff, but when they start talking shit, it's very much the two of them isolated. Steve is very much separate from them the way that he's i mean even down to the fact that like he's sitting on the car as opposed to the two of them who are standing like apart so i kind of feel like it is deliberately like separating them like they just i mean because steve even says it later in the scene like you're just miserable and i just i feel like that's sort of what they're going for is that they're trying to say like that they just kind of enjoy being awful Mm. and so which i do kind of think tracks through the season Mm -hmm. i don't think that they are particularly loyal people Mm. i mean especially considering like how quickly the scene changes and shifts and their relationship shifts because they've been saying these same things about jonathan from that second episode from the first scene in which we meet them Mm -hmm. i mean tommy even echoes that about how much you want to bet he killed him it was just like he probably had that look on his face when he killed his brother yeah so it makes me wonder if like steve is hearing this shit for the first First time. time yeah like and it's, you know, doubly impacted by what he just said to Jonathan. And, like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be like this anymore. I don't like watching this scene. <laughs> I hate this scene purely for secondhand embarrassment. Mm. And which is so weird because of, like, how much anger and, like, vitriol I had for Steve last episode. And I don't know if that's because this scene is, like, quite literally a direct confrontation between season one steve and knowing where he's gonna go Mm -hmm. those two sides of this character like kind of clashing in this moment it's a very uncomfortable place to be despite feeling a little bit for tommy i think steve actually acquits himself very well in this scene he has made this decision about who he wants to be and i think he realizes that like he can't go in that direction he can't change his life that way without fighting it out with tommy like i don't feel any secondhand embarrassment on his behalf watching that scene i did think though when steve says this thing about like you never cared about her, you never even liked her i'm like you think (laughs) like come on actually the other reason that i kind of felt for tommy a little bit in that moment is because he stood up for carol I don't agree with what Carol was saying whatsoever. But this is like the second or third time that Steve has been quite vicious to her Mm -hmm. verbally. Well, the first time it was completely undeserved. These second two times, it's a little bit more deserved. But at the same time, Steve didn't have to be that harsh. She was being cruel. But as he says in that moment, you are always cruel. This is just part of your makeup this Mm -hmm. is and he's been hanging out with her this whole time so if this is not a surprise why are you acting like this is an escalation when she's been doing shit like this this whole time well and he doesn't like yell at tommy like that right like he doesn't yell at tommy for saying like yeah he jonathan byers killed his brother you know so i'm not defending carol or her like slut with a heart of gold thing i think i might defend her if she hadn't used the word slut because her point stands yeah, that's This girl true. betrayed you. That's Why true. are you defending her? Yeah. 
So I do actually like that Tommy's like, I don't know what's going on with you, but you don't talk to her like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it reeks of that idea of like, I can be how I, I can be as shitty as I want to her, but you're not. Yeah. Because he, Tommy's been pretty nasty to her too. Oh, yeah. Not in the same way as Steve, but it stands in interesting contrast or comparison rather to the fact that you have all this conflict and resolution happening between the kids and between... Joyce and Jonathan and then you have Steve essentially like Tommy yells out to him here yeah run away you always run away which is he's not actually doing that Mm -hmm. he's actually going to try to make amends yeah he's going to confront the problem because he does go to the marquee in this one but what he doesn't do till episode eight is he goes to the buyer's home to apologize but also I imagine to be like to do exactly what you said he should have done in the first place, which is like, I should have gone to, to Nancy first and said like, what gives? You want to explain yourself? Yeah. And actually have the conversation and find the resolution. But at this point, it's not just to be like, what gives, but to also apologize for his role and what happened. But the fact that he goes to Jonathan's house first to be like, dude, that was, I was out of line. Like it adds to this theme of like conflict and resolution within this particular episode. Which I guess also speaks to the fact that, like, you need to get these pieces in motion to get to the big finale next time. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, I think in general, one of the things that I like about Steve's arc across all three seasons, and that's with a number of asterisks, sometimes we do have to get a hard, unpleasant look at ourselves. Something that we're doing or we've done or believe before we can make a change for the better. And, you know, whether that's something big or small. And I find that, I think that's what I, and probably several other people find compelling Mm -hmm. about this character. Just, it really offers a potential display of what it looks or feels like to make a change internally. Because the show doesn't let Steve just, quote, be redeemed. He's still confronting a lot of this stuff. I mean, literally the last scene we see of him is him being confronted by someone he used to, maybe not bully directly, but certainly thought he was, like, someone from his high school years who knew this version of him. Right. And I think that that's often how making a big change like this can actually work in life. It haunts you, even if others let it go. I think that's actually something, weirdly, that is echoed in um, substance abuse recovery, because one Mm -hmm. of the steps is going and apologizing to all of the people that you wronged without the expectation that they will forgive you or reinstate the relationship. It's just, you were going to say, I acknowledge that I did X, Y, Z. And this was this was also a new thought that I wonder if this is actually what he's referring to in season two when he says that I may be a pretty shitty boyfriend, mm-hmm. which is a line I've never liked. But I'm now wondering if this is actually what he's referring to, mm-hmm. like the way that he used to be. And that it's always been something of a ghost between them. You know, along with other stuff, granted, yeah. but just something to revisit. Yeah. I did wonder if the if the line, you couldn't take Jonathan Byers, like, <sighs> oof. Like, that I think has an extra sting, because not only could Steve not take him on in a fight, but also he essentially lost in sort of competition with Nancy. Yeah, like, and and that's absolutely something, an accusation that would come very much from someone like Tommy, who's very invested in, like, machismo and that kind of, like, toxic masculinity perspective toward relationships and toward women. So all in all, I guess ultimately it's a good scene. It just has a lot of baggage for Mm. me. 
Team Hopper, Joyce, Jonathan, Nancy spy on the Wheeler residence, and there's a sweet moment where Nancy worries about her parents and Mike. I know, and Hopper is, you know, trying desperately to get her not to do something incredibly stupid yeah. by going back to the house, and, and Hopper correctly points out, like, her parents are going to be fine. They don't want her parents. Mm -hmm. We don't need them to know you're involved. Right. And, of course, intuiting that they haven't found Mike and then pointing to the helicopter. She's like, for Mike? <laughs> He's just like, get in the car, I swear to God. Yeah. In the car, they figure out how to find the kids before the lab guys do because Jonathan has an idea. Wherein they return to the buyer's home, Nancy balks at all the Christmas lights, <laughs> and they get out the walkie-talkie. On the junkyard bus, the kids get a radio call from Nancy and debate whether or not it's safe to answer. With much discussion of Lando Calrissian, which mm -hmm. I appreciate. There's one plot hole here, and I love this episode so much that, like, I don't even care. But I do think that it does have to be acknowledged. The lab guys, with all of their, like, superior tech and whatnot, and knowing that these kids are into AV shit, they're not monitoring the local radio frequencies they were. We've seen them yeah. do it. Yeah, that's a good point. It's funny. I thought you were going to say something about the range. Like, they're not, the range is too far between oh, honey, the house. I know fuck all about that. Well, just because, <laughs> no, because in the very beginning, it's the whole, Lucas is way out of range. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, like, yeah. I'm, I, I wondered if that's what I thought you were going to say. So, there's two plot holes. But it absolutely has no effect whatsoever on my immersion or enjoyment or appreciation of the episode as a whole. Yeah, I, same. I'm like, whatever. Yeah. Back in Hawkins downtown, this is when Steve goes to the Hawk and offers to lend a hand to the guy cleaning the marquee. When he asks if Steve had anything to do with the graffiti, he just says he wants to help. And he does, taking over, scrubbing off the, the paint. Quotes I have from Worlds Turned Upside Down about this whole thing. Curie auditioned for the role of Jonathan Byers as part of a nationwide casting call. Two months later, he had a quick Skype conversation with Matt and Ross Duffer, and just one week later, he got good, if somewhat surprising news. He'd been cast as Steve. It was at that point that he decided to shape the character as something other than a straightforward antagonist. Quote, I wanted to justify the character's actions, so he wasn't doing terrible things for no reason, Kiri says. That was my goal going into it. Then as the process went along and the scripts came out, I worked with the brothers to create this sort of tightrope between doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing, just trying to make sure that every single choice that he made, whether it was good or bad, was justified, Kiri adds. I don't think he's necessarily turned out to be a villain, but I do think he was the opposite of Jonathan. He's pretty affluent and maybe doesn't understand things the way a character like Jonathan, who has been through struggles, does, just because of his upbringing, end quote. So I've had those quotes kind of floating in my brain since I got the book back out when we were like mid podcast recordings. And uh, so I really like the approach that they had. And, you know, credit to them for not just casting him, but also listening to him. Mm -hmm. Back on the bus, Dustin starts to panic and pace. It's been too long. <laughs> I laughed so hard when Lucas said, why would the chief set us up? Nancy, maybe. And Mike throws his hands up like, what the fuck? <laughs> Like, this is kind of cute, especially since we just saw Nancy display concern for Mike's safety. Yeah. So that was cute. Yeah. The lab guys arrive in two cars and the kids hide in the back of the bus, listening while there's a bunch of fighting sounds from, from outside. <laughs> and it all goes silent. And then Hopper steps into the bus and tells them, let's go. They basically invert this for Elle's return at the end of season two. Mm -hmm. It's not as noticeable because that sequence is far more dramatic and there's the romantic aspect of Mike and Elle being reunited, but it's basically the same setup. 
just with Hop and Elle switched, and the lab guys are swapped out for demodogs. Well, you know, apples and trees. And you know, yeah. Fathers and daughters. I just, I did, I liked that. I was like, oh, this is, they just invert this. Where, mm-hmm. like, there's this, like, anticipatory, like, waiting, and then it's like, and again, not just even just a, a switch, but also, like, an elevation. You know, it's been expanded because there's more people, and it's, like, actual, like, otherworldly monsters, not just human monsters, etc. Jonathan, Nancy, and Joyce, meanwhile, wait anxiously until Hopper returns with the boys in Eleven. All the groups are now working together! Ding! Mike explains the flea and the acrobat theory. Elle confirms for Hopper that the gate is underground near a large water tank. And I'm not sure how to read, like, their intense stare back and forth. Especially with future knowledge for where their relationship will go. But, I mean, one thing is clear. This is not the same pair as later seasons. It just shows how much they're going to change and grow. Mm Mm-hmm. Elle tries to find Will and Barb, but she can't. The boys explain Elle's powers. And I noticed that they do use the battery comparison here, which I forgot about because it seemed like it came out of nowhere in season three, but they do they do use that, that metaphor here. So I have to admit that. And Elle tells them that she can find Will and Barb in the bath. And this just, I don't know, that scene where she's in the bathroom and she she's having a rough moment and then she she looks over her shoulder and she figures it out it really cements this idea that a theme across all three seasons is l choosing to use her powers even and especially at great risk to herself yeah there's always kind of this moment where she chooses Mm -hmm. what am i gonna am i gonna do this do i want to no i can't think of a time when she doesn't choose to try to use her powers to help people i mean she's because she's confronted with that in the Lost Sister episode in season two, and she chooses to go back at risk to herself, at risk to not being able to enact her own desires for revenge and to get answers and mm-hmm. cut to footage of the thing. <laughs> and Mr. Clark watching it with a lady who seems less than happy about it. Was that the thing? What, yeah. Was that the movie they were watching? I'm pretty sure. I mean, if I'm wrong, listeners, please please correct me, but that's... I'm presuming that it's the thing. I have not experienced this cinematic masterpiece. I haven't either. I've only seen pieces of it, and um, it's more than enough, at least for me. As we've mentioned, we're not we're not mm-hmm. horror people. Even though I might get my extremely harsh feminist card revoked for this, I kind of like the moment they're invoking that trope of the girlfriend watching the scary movie despite not super being into scary movies because she knows how much her boyfriend likes it and also because you know it gives her an opportunity to be like and kind of like lean on him a little bit um i thought it was sweet especially because he then immediately like comforts her by being like by breaking it down and demystifying it and being like no that's not actually a person's head that's bubble gum and plastic you know the phone rings and dustin makes the legendary phone call to get information (laughs) on how to build a sensory deprivation tank for fun. fun (laughs) <laughs> when the camera pans around to reveal the whole group watching him boy do i feel the pressure that's on him and this leads me to a question that i would have for the duffers which would be how did that conversation go you know it, when they elect dustin to call mr clark you know i don't need it like in the show like i'm not saying hey this is a scene that's missing but it it makes me wonder just out of pure interest and curiosity to be like what was that conversation? Did Dustin volunteer? Did they like go, did they all kind of go, well, who should call him? And then everyone like turned to look at Dustin and he was like, what? Like, what, what was that scene? I just, I'm very curious. Or even to ask Gaten Matarazzo, like, mm-hmm. how do you think that would have gone down? <laughs> Why are you keeping this curiosity door locked? Oh my God. It's 
Well, and something that I forgot, again, that I just thought was really sweet is that Mr. Clark's immediate response to realizing that Dustin is calling him, especially that he's calling him so late, is, are you okay? Yeah. I love, too, that then Dustin is like, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, okay, goodbye. (laughs) And then, like, like, okay, I've gotten what I need from you, all right. This show does not need another core cast member. There's a lot of characters already. But I feel like Mr. Clark would be a really valuable addition to the Scooby gang. Dude, that was something that I felt about season three. I was like, can we please bring him into the fold already, Mm -hmm. please? It's not that it doesn't work in the third season or anything, but it's like, I really wish they would, especially since they even mentioned the kids. I think it's Mike goes at one point. What does Mr. Clark say? Like, let's reason through this. I forget the exact quote, but the fact that they're still thinking like in terms of that, which I love that line too, by the way. I mean, he's kind of, what's the, in Bond, there, isn't there like a M? He should be their M. Mm-hmm. And so with all of the information gathered from Mr. Clark, they head to the school to make the bath. Hopper and Jonathan gather salt bags. There's a great blooper here where Harbour just keeps tossing bags at Charlie Heaton and when he couldn't catch them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, at one point, Jonathan is nearly like knocked over yeah. by this one bag. It's I, So I can't see that scene and not think of that outtake anymore. But in the actual scene proper, Hopper assures Jonathan that he will find Will, which felt like a callback to chapter one when he said much the same thing. And it also echoes Nancy saying, we should tell your mom. And he says, no, she's been through enough. Mm -hmm. Like, that's literally the exact same statement. Dustin and Lucas try to set up the kiddie pool and it's a struggle true life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember those things. Yeah. Oh, they were annoying. We always had the the hard plastic ones. They were Mm. much smaller than that, Mm -hmm. but they were easier to get around and they were easier to fill up and they were more large dog proof. Joyce helps Elle prepare for the bath. I absolutely adore everything about Winona Ryder's performance in this scene. I mean, I have waxed lyrical about how much I love Joyce's maternal side. I feel a lot of like, love and care coming from her and I also feel the internal conflict. She's trying to get Eleven to do something that they both know is dangerous but it needs to be done in order for her to find Will. So she wants Elle to get in that bathtub but at the same time she knows how dangerous this is and I don't think that she feels 100% great about it. So much sincerity coming from her when she says I'm gonna be with you the whole time. I genuinely believe if something had happened and Elle had encountered the Demogorgon before she had been able to find Will and she had called out for help, that Joyce would have brought her out. And there's so many layers to Ryder's performance that opens it up for so many layers in Millie Bobby Brown's performance. This is the first time that someone has directly asked her to use her powers, but that has done so in a way that's very gentle with a promise of safety, with the caveat that you don't have to. Joyce says, you're so brave. Well, and she thanks her. Yeah. The way that the scene is both written on a macro and micro level, very much like what I said about uh, about Hopper saying to Joyce, you were right. Mm-hmm. And when I said, when was the last time Joyce heard someone say that to her? Very similarly here, this is probably the first time Elle has ever been thanked to have genuine appreciation for what she's about to do. Mm -hmm. Because the kids have been, I think, acknowledging in their own way. Yeah. But this is coming from an adult and just what a contrast, you know, to Brenner especially. Yeah, it's a beautiful scene. 
And watching this time, I wondered, why didn't they give her new clothes? Like, <laughs> maybe some of Will's? The same way that she wore Mike's sweatshirt and sweatpants back in Chapter 1. I mean, granted, she's gonna get the dress wet and in the bath and all that. But but after that, like, they couldn't have brought, like, with them a spare set of, like, a shirt, pants, socks, shoes. I, I want that for Elle. I, she deserves a new outfit. Well, she gets new outfits. But she gets many new outfits as the series progresses. Yes, but not in but not in this season. Right. And of course, it's sweet to watch both Hopper and Joyce help her in. Mm-hmm. Once she goes into the astral plane, she finds Barb's corpse and screams, understandably. Mm-hmm. I really love the word gone. Not dead, not get me out, not ah, gone. Barb is gone. And that's and then, and then in that moment, you know. Elle starts screaming and freaking out and Joyce pulls her closer and Hopper does a little too, which I hadn't noticed before, but it's just Joyce's mom's instincts just kicking in and just, it is enough that Elle doesn't say, yeah, I'm tapping out. The encouragement from, you know, from Joyce, you know, gives her the The strength to keep going. You know, we see Elle screaming in the upside down or in the astral plane rather, but when it starts, in our plane of existence, she's just whispering. And and Joyce immediately leaps into action and says, it's okay, it's okay, I'm here, I've it's okay, you. I've got you. We hear that and we see that filtering down. And it's almost like you can sort of feel Elle's heart rate slowing down and, and calming a little bit. And it's, yeah, I mean, that's the first time that somebody has done that for her. And that's really, really powerful. I also think it's worth noting that... The look on Nancy's face is pretty yeah. heartbreaking, too. Yeah, it is. Elle finds Castle Byers and Will inside looking pretty rough. Yeah. But he's alive. Joyce gives messages for Elle to, to give to him, to stay where he is, and that they're coming. And it seems to me that Elle's vocabulary is a bit broader in the astral plane. Mm. I don't know if that's just because it's a it because it literally is a different plane, but the connection falters and Elle comes out of it. Joyce holding Elle is the bookend to the earlier scene, and it makes me misty-eyed every mm-hmm. time I watch it. She's not thinking, like, you don't get a shot of her, like, holding going, like, you did good, and being able to- And like, where's Will? Where's yeah. Will? Like, or even just thinking, clearly distracted by that thought. It's like she is 100% focused on Elle in yeah. that moment, and that's that's really beautiful. Yeah. A little while later, we have Elle tuckered out, leaning on Mike while Lucas helps with the towel and rubs her arm in a way that just- <laughs> I found that just so sweet. Yeah. All three of them are actively taking care of her. It's yeah. it's really great. And like, wow, what a change from where they were the last time, you know, like just how things have been between that group. Hopper starts to leave, but Joyce insists that she comes too. Mm-hmm. He's my son, Hop. And Jonathan starts to go too, but Joyce makes him stay. And thus the first split of the party. Mm. I thought it was kind of funny that literally the whole season, Jonathan's been like, let me do something. And he keeps getting like put off by, you know, the adults. Yeah. I mean, that scene has happened multiple times. And then he goes back into the school and over to Nancy, you know, with this really nice shot of them both under this massive painted tiger, which I thought was kind of an apt metaphor, mm-hmm. considering that their conversation leads them to deciding to return to their original plan of hunting down the monster. Because the monster killed her friend mm-hmm. and she wants to kill it. And I think that that's kind of interesting coming right off of this moment where Jonathan's like, let me do something. And Nancy's like, let's do something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to admit that I forgot how much season two does mirror this setup. 
with one team going to Hawkins Lab, another creating a diversion for the big bad, or one of them, and a third team facing off with a secondary foe. But I don't care. No. I feel like, you know, and I'm interested if, to see if you agree with this, I feel like this is a really big turning point for Nancy. One of the big early steps of this pivoting her in this direction that we see her head off in in the rest of the series. Like, really kind of shedding just kind of the life she used to have. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, she, she was contemplating that with the whole, last, last week I was shopping with Barb for right. a new top, you know. But this is, I think, her saying, like, nah, man, I want to yeah. kill the thing. Mm-hmm. I'm done. I'm done with whatever life I used to have. I'm fully committed to basically becoming a badass. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's kind of interesting. In And I just saying that out loud, I wonder if there's a bit of an echo, like a parallel there between her and Steve. Yeah. And that could be one of the reasons that they still have at least something to say to each other. You know, they still have that connection. Mm-hmm. This is kind of like where they are in their walk of life anyway. But both of them are making this like huge change and becoming much more true to themselves. So yeah, they the party splits again while Nancy and Jonathan sneak off to the police station to take back their gear. Hopper plans to just sneak into the lab like he did before. Joyce isn't so sure, but they do it anyway and are quickly ambushed. <laughs> and finally... The episode ends with in the Upside Down, where Will trembles inside the grotesque castle fires while the Demogorgon stalks outside, and eventually the shelter is blown apart. One last thing in praise of, like, badass Nancy is she just, like, smooth takes that fire extinguisher, and I, it's a headcanon, really, but they weren't planning on taking that, but she saw it and she was like, oh, we can use that. Yeah. And oh, she just, sure. like, kind of grabbed it. Yeah. And yeah, what an episode! I know. Oh my god. I couldn't believe. I mean, I couldn't believe when the episode was over. I had a very much a moment like it's over already. So much happens, but it's like it definitely goes by very quickly. Yeah. And like I, I knew that it was ending because I knew that this is, you know, it ends with poor little Will. Oh man. Oh, man. oh just oof. this so kid much. can't catch a break. <laughs> And I remember, though, I have to give the episode credit for, like, the fact that he does get caught. It's really impressive that he's been able to stay hidden, that it didn't get him to begin with. Yeah. And as awful and as heartbreaking as it is, I think if he'd been able to just hide the whole time, if they had found him just in Castle Byers, I'd have bought it because I want things to work out. But you know what I mean? I think it gets a little extra credit for not playing it safe. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's our setup for the entirety of season two. Yes. Is that yeah. he has this possession, essentially, because it, he got caught. They didn't know that they, I mean, they did not have any future plans for the second season when they wrote this. Mm. But I, I also respect the fact that they utilized that mm-hmm. as their, you know, what propelled them forward. And I wish that that was actually something that they had done more at the end of the second season. Right. We're almost at the final episode of season one. I can't oh, believe man. it. Like the instinct that you had last time of like, ah, oh, I just I can't, can't, can we watch the next episode? And I was like, no, because I am really trying to be disciplined about not watching the episodes until we're preparing to record because I want to keep my impressions fresh. But like this time I was like, we're going to watch the next one, right? Right? Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so no, I have to I have to kill my own joy this time yeah. and say, no, no. Just reserve the joy. Yeah. This is a pretty rockin' episode. Yeah. Unlike a lot of, I mean, we've had some, some like, I feel like this is one of the episodes we've gotten through and have had probably the least negative things to say. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that sticks out that I feel like is 
upsetting. Yeah. This one is probably, I would almost say, is probably the strongest. Just from this close reading, very critical perspective. Yeah, it's it's definitely up there, if not the strongest. Yeah. So with that said, this concludes our contemplation of Chapter 7, The Bathtub. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Over and out. Flip. In tone. No. Gaten's delivery. No. Um, you said it was a really deft. Yeah. The second no was because I referred to him as Gaten, oh. which I try to um, be respectful enough to actors the same way I am to authors and refer to them. If I'm only going to do one name, I do surname. Surname, yeah. Matarazzo's delivery of that line flips the entire tone of the scene and...